Hey, welcome to another Dispatches from Afghanistan with Holly McKay. Holly's back in the U.S., and so this is a bit of a wrap-up. And um, I'm going to ask a few questions having to do with both the experience or perspective on Afghanistan at this point, and also uh, well about being a war reporter in general. You ready for this one, Holly? Let's do it. All right. So the first question is... uh a, a a question having to do with what was the biggest what is the biggest thing the american public believes about the war in afghanistan that isn't true from your perspective i think the biggest thing is you know that we tend to view the taliban through the eyes of an insurgency which obviously they have been for the past 20 years but it's important to sort of remember at this particular time, um, they are trying to be however a government and they are trying to get that international recognition. So the same actions in terms of targeting foreigners, in terms of suicide bombings and attacks and, and slaughtering people that they just aren't happening on the same scale that it happened as an insurgency. And, and for the most part, whenever there are any sort of retaliatory acts, they are very much the exception, not the norm. And I think, um, you know, as uncomfortable as it is, we have to also recognize the Taliban's since they did take the presidential palace, they are no longer an insurgency and we have to, we have to gear our, our viewpoints um, to this new era. Okay. Well, all right. So, uh, given that, um, how much do you think the Taliban currently pay attention to the world outside of Afghanistan? They pay a lot of attention to the world outside. They are very aware and are very concerned about their public image, so to speak. And they have very much since, since day one been on a PR quest to try to prove that they're different or try to prove that they have been misrepresented. And this is why I go back to that same notion of making sure that they are represented accurately and that things are not exaggerated, things are not blown out of proportion, um, and that we do view them outside the insurgency lens because when we don't do that and when news isn't accurate, that is just ammunition and, and rightfully so for the Taliban's to say, well, we're not being perceived correctly. So I, I do think it's important to to just say as it is without without agenda, without exaggeration. I think that's something that has been lost a little bit in the coverage of Afghanistan this year. Yeah, there you go. All right. So um, next question is, um, so what what drew you so strongly to this place? Because the, the questioner says it seems completely different from where you're from. Absolutely. I grew up in a small country town in Australia and I came to the U.S. to study when I was 20 and have been here ever since. So it certainly is different, very different to my upbringings. And I think that's also part of what drew me to these places is because they were so remarkably different to the childhood that I'd had. And to be in a, you know, the idea of growing up in a war zone where a bomb could be dropped in your house or you could be targeted or that your dad may not come home. Those things are never things that I had to worry about as a child. And I think that's something that really compelled me to want to understand how these people live their daily lives, how they become so resilient, how they build their lives again and again, despite it being destroyed. And that's just something that intrigued me because it was so far removed from my own life. And 
I feel that I've learned so much from these people and in, in their bravery and their strength and their resilience. And I think there's a huge amount of lessons that we can all learn, um, especially those of us who were fortunate enough to grow up in areas where there wasn't a war. And I think there's so much to be learned from, from survivors and, and people that have lived through just really incredible hardships. And I think I'm, I've always been in awe of that and I'm still in awe of that. Mm. So you're, you know, a little had maybe what about a week and a half, two weeks to um, separation from a place. Next question that was asked is, um, what do you think life in Afghanistan will be 10 years from now? I think it's incredibly hard to predict. Uh, Afghanistan has obviously for the past three, four decades been in incredible turmoil and in states of perpetual conflict and violence. I really would love to see the Afghans get some kind of reprieve from fighting, from conflict, from constant war. But I, I, I think that's a very optimistic view. I don't necessarily see that happening immediately. And despite the Taliban's being in power, they still have threats from ISIS and goodness knows in 10 years what other groups may or may not proliferate. But the humanitarian crisis now is drastic and I hope that the international community takes drastic action to support the Afghan people because they're the ones who suffer from this. And I, you know, if that, if that isn't taken care of now, it's going to be terrifying to think what happens in years to come. Um, so certainly Afghanistan has been an unlucky place in, in many ways. And the optimistic side of me wants to say that, that hopefully they find some kind of, peace really and 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 a break from the violence and a break from the cycle of poverty but i think these things take a long time to heal and i don't know that it will heal in 10 years so i i do think we will continue to see a lot of unrest coming from afghanistan in the years to come mm-hmm. so given your hopes the next question i think becomes rather poignant which is uh, then the question is if you could change one thing in afghanistan what would that be Right now, it would be the the hunger. Really, people have no money; they can't afford food. People are starving. It's a uh, it's in tra- it's tragic. So, if I could change one thing, it would be an ability to for, for every family just to have the basics in terms of of bread, oil, rice, uh, just the basic things that Afghans need to kind of sustain themselves. And a lot of people can't afford that right now. So. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be what I would change is just, is making sure that people went to bed with something in their stomach. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the, a couple of questions ago, you kind of went into, you know, what drew you to war reporting. And, um, so w- one of the questions that was asked on the internet, what having to do with that is, um, was there any pushback? that you received from loved ones, colleagues, when you decided to go into war journalism? I think, I don't think that the pushback was necessarily uh, from colleagues. I think, you know, most people were, were quite supportive of the work that I was doing. And I had a great mentor in Los Angeles 
uh, our former reporter by the name of Dom, uh, who's unfortunately passed, but he'd been a war reporter for a really long time. And he's somebody who really encouraged me to, to follow that passion that I had. So I'm very grateful to him. Um, I think obviously my parents had concerns about it, still have concerns about it. It's so far removed again from their life that it's, it's always harder for people that love you to accept when you choose to go into dangerous situations. I think it's always easier when you're the one doing it and it's much harder for, for people that care about you on the outside sort of looking in and, and feeling helpless in these situations. So I think it's, it's not something that they're ever going to be completely comfortable with. Um, and then of course, you know, with, with work at the time, it, it was always a fight. Um, I think that especially when you're young, uh, you're a woman, people write you off as, as not being the, you know, maybe the best choice for doing these things. And, and there's this still very much this idea that it needs to be a man's job and needs to be, you know, someone who's been out doing this for years. And I think that hopefully is changing, but I still think some of those preconceived ideas around war reporting, uh, exist. It, despite the fact that there really are so many women, um, really leading the charge in this particular niche now. Yeah, that's true. Um, so experience wise, the, the, there's a question. What is your most amazing experience or memory as a war reporter? The, the, the literally the, the, the question asked, what was the most memorable thing? Gosh, um, that could go anyway. You could definitely point that you know, in a positive way or a negative way, because there are just so many memories from every single trip that stick with you. And it's always, sometimes there's no real rhyme or reason for the memories that really, that play at you and the ones that play in your mind and that you think about um, every night, because they're just certain ones that stay with you. I think amazing memory for me, I just remember being in, in Iraq, on one occasion and being at a displacement camp, um, in the North and these Yazidis were coming back after several years of being held as sex slaves. And, and I was sort of the first person to kind of see them as they were coming back. I mean, even before their children and before aid workers or before, you know, and I was going in to interview them and I remember just thinking how incredible it was, A, that they'd survived, but, but B, you know, there's this sort of feeling of guilt about you know, why, what, how was I in this position to be the first person to speak to them, even though really there wasn't any assistance there and there was nobody else. But I just remember it being a bizarre feeling and, and thinking and feeling like as much as it was important to me to tell their story, it, it just felt very, it felt very strange and it felt, it's just felt a very strange situation. And it's something I think about a lot. Um, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just, it was a strange time. And I, I think about those women a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I, yes, you do. Um, so that leads to the follow-up question, which is, you know, how do you handle the emotional and psychological effects of covering these stories and seeing the things you've seen? How do you maintain hope and avoid burnout uh, one question is you know do you have difficulty sleeping because of what you witnessed i think you know as my friend dennis you probably, you probably know that i don't always handle it uh i think i would like 
to say that I always handled it, but that's definitely not accurate. I think there are definitely moments uh, when it is a really big struggle and it's a, it's a big dark cloud over my life and it's things that I have to constantly work through um, in terms of sometimes it's not necessarily a linear thing. You know, you can witness a lot of things and, and, and maybe those things don't hit you straight away, but maybe weeks later or even months later, you start to uh, unravel a particular memory and that's when it, it perhaps impacts you the most. So there really isn't a lineage to how you deal with these things. Um, I think that for me, I, I need a lot of alone time. I, but not too much alone time. I also need to, to be in the real world to some degree. Um, but I, I try to keep my life in the US as simple as possible. I don't like, uh, a huge commitments to things. Um, I don't necessarily you know, join groups or clubs or, or I don't want to ever feel obliged to have to be at certain places and certain things because I think my life as a war reporter is, can be very complicated and require a lot of logistics and a lot of effort and a lot of stress. And so when I'm in the U.S., I like to keep things as far away from that level of stress as possible. So, um, to the, you know, to the degree where you know, people are always come and do this or what is your hobbies? And, and I've had to kind of say no to a lot of that because I just want to have my time and to have the peace and to be able to work at my own pace without a huge amount of obligation or, or complexities um, beyond that. So that's one thing I, I do to try to keep as sane as possible, but you do sacrifice a lot when you go into this profession and being a writer is a very lonely job. You don't have, you don't have fellow soldiers. You don't have a big television crew. You don't have a lot of people around you as a support system. So you do have to be your own support system. And it is a challenge. And I would be, I'd be lying if I said that it was, it was always easy, but, but I love the work that I do, but it does come with a big personal sacrifice. And I'm well aware of that uh, mm. because we've been friends for a long time now. And I, I can tell you that. Holly McKay is very, very brave in terms of facing these kinds of challenges and stress. So here's a question, a serious question, and one I've wondered about myself, which is, has there ever been a situation during your career when you felt you just could not continue, maybe seeing too much pain or misery or fear or frustration? You know, have you ever thought, if not me, nobody else will do this? I think there have been times when I've known that I have to take a break, um, that maybe my reactions to things are not normal or that I am not, not, yeah, pushing the boundary too much. Um, I think, you know, with this last trip to Afghanistan, I went to a place called Chapagal, which is sort of the ISIS headquarters and, and that's where they plant a lot of their bombs and it's a, a Taliban no-go zone essentially, especially at night. And, I was planning to go in there. I wanted to see what was happening. I wanted to understand how much control that ISIS or the Dash had over this particular area of Nanganha, which is, um, it was just a little bit outside of the capital, Jalalabad. And I remember going in and, or, or planning to go in and, and my photographer is very experienced war reporter, Jake. He hesitated and said, I don't think we should do this. And I remember feeling absolutely nothing going, well, I'm going in. 
Um, and, you know, we worked out logistics and, and of course Jake came too, and, and thankfully things were fine. But I did think after that, that, that maybe, you know, it was time to take a little bit of a break because I maybe was a little bit desensitized to those types of risks. And it certainly happens when you are, you know, in these, in these volatile environments for weeks or months on end. So there's certainly times in my career when I felt that, yes, I do need to take a, a break. But I don't think it's ever crossed my mind to stop doing it because I love what I do so much and I'm very, very grateful to have a purpose in life. I think so many of us struggle with that throughout our lives and finding what it is that our calling is, what it is that we're meant to be doing. And I'm very grateful that I found that at a young age and and I love it. And I, I honestly can't imagine doing anything else. There you go. All right. Well, yeah, I have to tell you, uh, on that one trip into ISIS country, yeah, I, I gulped too. <laughs> Cause yeah. it was, um, um, you know, it's, uh, there are very few after your experience there being able to go almost anywhere in the country. That was the one point where I go, maybe there's still a line outside the wire there that's not worth crossing, but you did. And you picked up a pretty good story from it too. So, so here's the next question. All right. You know, and I, and I do know that, that, that you have done this because you, you wrote a book called only cry for the living, right. About your experiences in uh, Iraq and, and Syria. But the question from, from this internet user is how often do you cry for the living? Yes. And this is my book winner. And I answered this in a video today, but I cry a lot. I, I woke up this morning in tears. Um, and, and I think that's a normal reaction to processing a lot of heavy things, I think. Um, and again, going back to this struggle that I have, you know, personally with, um, I guess, you know, being a writer, being a little bit lonely in my head and, and, you know, not having, a huge support system, a few good friends, but my family isn't here. And, and so even that, that is a struggle for me. So combine all those things. And I think I do cry a lot, but I think it's, we have this preconceived notion that somehow war reporters have to be these sort of tough, um, you know, chain smoking, swearing, da, 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 da. and there's certainly moments when you've got to have a very thick skin. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's also, it's also something that it's an image that needs to change because the way that I like to write and the way that I like to interact is to be very personable, to, to be a human before I'm a journalist, to be respond very naturally to very difficult situations and, and to really come from a place of humanity. And we need women doing this job and we need mothers doing this job and we need people from all different walks of life doing this job because we're going to come at it with a very different perspective oftentimes than our male colleagues who perhaps generally are a little bit more hardened. But I think the way that my writing style is, is, is to be, to be very intimate and to, to try to put myself as in these people's shoes as much as I can. And that does require a huge amount of empathy. And so naturally with that, um, I think, I think crying and, and, and feeling all those things, um, is something that I'm not ashamed to admit that I do. Um, no, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. I've, I've heard you do it many times and it's heartfelt every time you've done it. So last question, and this is uh, to end it on a, a positive note. 
This internet user asks a question. What is the kindest thing you've seen someone do for someone else? Oh, I think, I mean, gosh, I feel like so many of these places I work, you know, kindness is really the staple of, of how they function. I mean, when somebody doesn't have something to eat, it's the neighbors that chip in, it's the family that chips in, it's, it's everybody kind of trying to support each other. But again, you know, to go back to the book and to go back to my experiences in Iraq, seeing people, especially within the Yazidi community, selling everything they had, selling their livestock, selling their personal belongings, going to the neighbors, trying to raise money to pay ransoms to get some of these Yazidi girls back. And, you know, these people that had nothing were still were still giving everything they possibly could. And these were large sums of money that families needed to raise in order to get their wives, their daughters, their mothers back. And you know, it wasn't something that, that I could have helped with or that you could have helped with because in order to have helped them, it would have been considered by, by U.S. law and the Patriot Act as, as supporting terrorism because essentially, you know, ISIS were on the back end of, of receiving whatever ransom funds it was. And so that was always really challenging because I, you'd be with these people and I, I couldn't, I couldn't help them. And yet you'd, you'd see them just really just selling everything they had and, and working from dusk till dawn every day to try to make extra money and, and children and everybody in the entire communities were involved in this and getting that money and, and trying to, to orchestrate that rescue. And I think you know, that is what people do in, in times of war and there's, is is that coming together? And I would like to think, you know, in the U S that if something Kevin forbid ever happened, that, that we as a community would, would help each other out in that way as well. I hope so too. Well, with that, another set of questions and answers about the life story of Holly McKay as a war correspondent in some of the most difficult parts of the world. Thank you, Holly, for this session and uh, we look forward to the next one thank you dennis